And Lord, in our own church, with lots of babies and just lots going on, we certainly commit ourselves and our ways, our needs, our desires to you. And as we look at this portion of your word this morning, help us to get, each one of us, just that part you have for us, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. Long ago and far away, many stories start, long ago and far away, uh, there was a city, a uh, neat place, important city. This was a city, really, you could call a golden city. It was a very, very wealthy place. The river that ran through it or next to it literally ran with gold. They panned gold out of this river. It was one of the main sources. Hi, guys. One of the main sources for this city's wealth. It was the first city, as far as history records, that actually coined, made coins. You know, as far instead of just weighing out metals as far as purchase or trades, they were the first to make coins. They were so wealthy, they were also a capital city. So it was the capital of an important realm. So they had lots of wealth and they had prestige. They also, as far as the city, the way it was located, part of the city was down on the flat plain, but the vast majority of the city was built up on the side of a mountain. And they had, as as you guys probably know from ancient times, they had big walls built around it. So as far as those in the city were concerned, they had wealth and reputation and they had great security because they sat on a mountain with this big wall. They figured they were impregnable, unassailable. But as you can figure out, as somebody else kind of looking their direction thought, I want what they have. And so a king from the east came to expand his territory And he wasn't daunted by the walls or the city up on the mountain. And his plan was simple. He sent his soldiers under cover of night, just like thieves in the darkness, to the weakest part of the wall. And I don't know if you guys remember when we studied through Daniel Babylon, when they're surrounded by the armies that are coming against their whole empire, they're throwing a party inside because they think nobody can get us. We've got all this stuff in here. Nobody can assail us. We'll just let, we'll wait it out. But of course, they diverted the river. They came in through the dry river bed and they took Babylon. Well, that's kind of like this. These guys, they thought were wealthy, were important, and we've got this great city with a great wall. We don't have to be careful. We don't have to be watchful. And so they weren't. So these few soldiers, they came in at the weakest point of the wall. They got in. And the rest was history. They took the city. Uh, This was in about 500 B.C., 546 B.C. It was Cyrus of Persia who came to the city of Sardis. And Sardis was this just wealthy city on a hill. But see, they got careless. They got kind of proud, and they thought that they didn't need to be watchful or be careful, and they weren't. And because they weren't, they lost this battle. They lost their city. This is... Interesting, too, because not only this happened this time, 300 years later, the exact same situation happened again. This time it was Antiochus the Great. Did the same thing. They're sitting in their city and they think our walls were on the mountain, no problem. So they weren't careful. They weren't watchful. And the same thing happened again. This is the city of Sardis. This was destroyed almost entirely in 17 AD by an earthquake, and then it was rebuilt And so this is a city that Jesus is addressing next in these letters in Revelation 2 and 3. So we're going to start this morning at Revelation 3, 1. And if you remember, 
kind of as we've addressed city by city, we started Ephesus on the coast, we came north, then we came east, and we're working our way southeast with every successive city. Thyatira was the last one, and we're going about 30 miles south and east into modern-day Turkey. That's the site of the ancient city of Sardis. So at Revelation 3, verse 1, Jesus says, To the angel or messenger of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We'll stop there for just a minute. The one with the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You remember in the scripture, typically numbers mean something. Not always, but generally they do. And seven means complete or perfect. So a week is over after seven days have been fulfilled. Seven is a number of completion. And if you remember when Jesus was introduced, it talked about the seven spirits of God. It'll talk about that again in Revelation chapter 4. When Jesus says that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God, he is making a bold claim to being fully divine, fully deity, God himself. You remember the scripture is clear on this older New Testament that if you're not God, to make a claim to deity is not a good thing to do. And Jesus says here, I'm the one, I have the complete, the fullness of God, Colossians says it this way, the fullness of God dwelled in him bodily. Jesus is saying, I am God, no less than God. God fully lives in me. I am deity. The one addressing you is deity, God himself. And he says he's got the seven stars. You remember that image in chapter 1? He's standing there in this glorious, kind of dark around, but lights he's lit up, and he's holding seven stars in his right hand. It's a reminder to this church that, like the city they live in, has probably become proud and a little indifferent, that the one that is addressing them is the one who has all authority. He's the one calling the shots. He's the one that will tell them what's good enough and what isn't. And when they're done and when they're not done, as we'll see here in a little bit. So it's God himself addressing them, and it's the one who has all authority over the church at Sardis and over all of the church. That's the one addressing them. He says to them, in the rest of that verse, I know your deeds. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. We would say you have a reputation that you're alive. Jesus says to this church, reputation, a name. People think of you, Sardis, church at Sardis, as a place that's vital and alive. But he says, he looks in with his x-ray vision and he says, what I see is death, not life. You know, if you ask yourself what that looks like, what, what would that have looked like from the outside to us? I assume Sardis was busy. That is, that this church was active. They probably had a lot of activities going on. They probably met in impressive buildings. I suspect they had financially that they were well set that the things around them they could boast of. And they had some successes in the past, just like the city they lived in, had some successes. So there was this appearance on the outside that things looked healthy and vital and well. But by Jesus' measuring rod, he looks and says, guys, you aren't doing well. Your reputation doesn't fit reality. When I look in there, I don't see life. I see death. You remember Jesus when he talks to the Pharisees in the Gospels? He says, you guys are like a tomb. And you know, for them, it wasn't a hole in the ground. It was a rock enclosure. He says, you're like a tomb that's been whitewashed. 
you know, a lime paste. So it's bright and shiny and it looks impressive from the outside, but all it holds is death or bones. He says that's what this church was like, a reputation or a name that they were alive, but the reality was, no, they were dead. They were dead within. We've mentioned with every church we looked at that almost certainly these churches don't just represent... uh, themselves, but they represent the church at some point in its history or its development. The church at Sardis, almost certainly, if you look at the pattern, the things Jesus addresses, and then you look at the church history, it almost certainly represents the church around the time of the Reformation. Uh, If you know church history, uh, just like Israel, uh, the church was no sooner born and started than errors and problems start in. You know, Israel's given the law on the mountain. They say, well, obey it, and they're breaking the law before Moses gets down with the tablets. Kind of like that with the church. Uh, Errors started in right away. And, of course, the early church, you've got all the councils. They're all addressing some error, some problem that sprang up. By the time you get to the Reformation period, the church, centered in Rome, is an impressive setting. That is, it's wealthy, and it's very, very powerful. And at this point, and for hundreds of years, the church, the official church, had been building these great cathedrals across Europe. So that if you looked in that time period, if you looked at the church, you'd say, wow, it's impressive. See, because they've got all this wealth. In fact, the popes were ruling over the nations at that time. They told kings what they would and would not do. They sent the armies of the nations around to take care of guys they didn't, uh, they wanted to correct in one way or another. So there was wealth. There was power. And if you went to these cathedrals, you know, you walk in today, I mean, still in Europe, they're standing today. They're hundreds of years old. Some, some are older than that. Uh, it was impressive. It was impressive. There's a passage in Ezekiel, though, where Ezekiel's looking at the temple in Jerusalem, which was a very impressive building, too. And as he looks at the building, this impressive temple where God had promised to meet with his people, he sees God's glory leave the temple. So even though they were continuing to meet there, God wasn't there anymore. And I think that's a little bit of what that period of time is like. It was impressive on the outside by worldly standards. Looked good, looked vital, looked successful. But God wasn't there. And when Jesus looks in at his own church, he says, I don't see life. Remember, Jesus is the God of all life. He's the source of all life. He looks at the church, the expression of his life on earth, and he says, guys, I don't see life, I see death. You know, the church becomes a mausoleum. It's not a place of life, but it's a place where dead men's bones are laid. And that was the church of the Reformation period. Very impressive on one scale, but very dead on the other. He tells this church in verse 2, he said, you're dead. Now, this is kind of like uh, one of our favorite movies is The Princess Bride. Entertain me for just a minute. They take this guy in And they think he's dead. And the guy, Mad Max or somebody, Max the Magician, looks at him and says, no, he's mostly dead, but he's not all the way dead. That's the thought here. Jesus says dead, and it's necros. I mean, it's the Greek term for dead, but it's mostly dead. It's not all dead. Because he says in verse 2, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, because I've not found your deeds completed or finished in the sight of my God. Wake up. Wake up. 
See, it's, it's not that they were dead dead. It's that for all practical purposes they were dead. They were asleep. So for any practical purpose, they're dead. They're dead to the world. They're dead to the things around them. They're dead to what God wanted them to be about because they're asleep. So Jesus called to them. He says, wake up or become watchful. We could translate this also. It's wake up. It's become aware again. It's become alert again. Do you remember a week ago, Kristen, I think it was, when we talked about Thyatira, do you remember that to half of that church or a portion of the church, he says, guys, you're doing okay. Don't worry about the other things I've said. There's just one thing. Keep doing what you're doing. Finish the race. He, He said, keep it up until I come. See, at Sardis, they hadn't just given up in the race of life. They had lain down on the course. They were sleeping. They were asleep at the wheel. When I thought about this, and and as I've prepared to teach, if I tell you that somebody falls asleep at work, you might think this is not a big deal. They fell asleep. Happens to everybody. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. When we read this, we need to sense that what Jesus is accusing them of is a betrayal of the deepest kind. The the folks that got this letter, they were ruled by the Roman uh, government. And if you were a Roman soldier, do you know what the penalty was for falling asleep on duty? It was death. It was the death sentence to fall asleep. Because the Roman government was saying, when you're on duty, you're you're carrying the responsibilities of the Roman world with you. You do not have permission or license to fall asleep if you're on duty. And we regard this so highly that if you fail in this, you'll forfeit your life. To fall asleep was to betray the trust. That's the thought here. It's not that, gee, it's the afternoon and the sun's warm and my tummy's full and I just got a little sleepy. It is this betrayal of a sacred trust. It's not a minor faux pas. It is a betrayal akin to Judas. It's that I've been given this responsibility and I've said I've got better things to do and I'm a little tired and I think I'm going to lay down and catch 40 wings. That's the way we need to think about this. It's not a weakness. This was a conscious betrayal of a trust. So Jesus' word to them is, guys, wake up. You've been dead for all practical purposes to the world. Looks like a lot's going on. Outside, spiritually, nothing's going on. You've got to wake up. Wake up. I worked for a roofing company in Topeka years ago, and hot work, and of course you're on the top of buildings. And because it's hot, of course, you go to the water cooler routinely. And every cut that I ever took when I was on one of these roofs said the same thing. Three words on every cup. Every time you got a drink, the same three words were on every cup. Does anybody know what these were? Anybody in the construction trades? Al? The three words were aware, alert, alive. See, you're on a roof or a construction scene of any kind. You're supposed to be aware of your surroundings. You've got to be aware of where you're at and the possibility of what could happen if you're not aware. You've got to be alert to the potential danger around you. And if you're aware and you're alert, you'll stay alive. And if you go to sleep, so to speak, you've got potential trouble. It's not okay to go to sleep on the roof. You've got to stay aware and alert, 
and alive. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying to these guys. You've gone asleep. You didn't just quit the race. You've lain down on the course. You've got to wake up. This thought about uh, waking up or staying alert, this is, read the Gospels, read the New Testament. This thing, this theme recurs over and over and over again. Look at all the parables or the stories Jesus tells in the Gospels about waiting for the return of someone. The return of a master to the household or the slaves, the return of a bridegroom for the bride. This is repeated over and over again. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, talking to the church, talking to another church, earlier in time, Jesus said the same words that he said to this church as far as the same theme. Paul says, listen to this in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, you know that the day of the Lord, Jesus' return, is going to come like a thief in the night. A thief in the night. This is not a good thing. You know, the thought of a thief breaking into my house, I'm asleep, I'm unaware, it's not a good thing. But Paul says that Jesus' coming would be like a thief in the night. But he says to the Christians there in Thessalonica, but you're not in the dark, guys, that this day should overtake you like a thief. You are sons of light and sons of the day. Paul's using an analogy, day versus night. Christians are people whose lives are characterized by the day. And during the day, you're aware and you're alert because you're working. Paul says here, don't sleep like others do, but be alert and sober. When do you sleep? You sleep at night. So Paul's telling this group, you are called like people whose lives are characterized by the daylight hours. You're supposed to be awake. You're supposed to be alert. You're supposed to be working. He says those who are spiritually dead, they're like people at night. They're spiritually asleep. Or they're reveling, he says. His last thought to them is since we are of the day, since we're called to the daylight hours, we're spiritually awake Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, like a commissioned soldier in the army, you're dressed for battle, and you're prepared and ready. You're not asleep. You're ready. Jesus called Thessalonians to be awake, just as he did this church too. He tells them to wake up, aware, alert, alive, to strengthen... What remains and was about to die, the Greek term here for strengthen is steroids. We get our term steroids from. It's to give strength to something. Give strength to what remains and was about to die. Even uh, in any time in history that you look, God's always got his work that he's about. You remember back in the days of Elijah, he thinks he's the only prophet left, but God says, no, no, I've got 7,000 others. I'm at work. And sometimes numerically it doesn't look like a lot, and sometimes it doesn't look impressive, but God says, I've always got my remnant, my group, those folks who belong to me, I'm always at work. You know, during the days of the Reformation, it looked bad, it looked spiritually dead, but there were pockets of real faith and real vitality. The Holy Spirit was really at work. Just as there were in this church of Sardis that got this letter the first time, there were areas, there were people, God was really at work. But because this group had been asleep, they hadn't been nurturing. They hadn't been involved with these areas God was really at work in. 
So they were floundering. They were floundering. Maybe these were new Christians that just weren't being discipled. Or they could have been outpost churches, churches on the outskirts of town, small house churches that were having a tough time. Jesus calls this church to wake up and then to attend to those areas of life that were floundering. It's as if there's a candle burning and it's about to go out. He says, guys, wake up. Take care of the candles. This same verse, this appeal to the church at Sardis, was the verse that started a young Dutch pastor almost 50 years ago. Uh, He was convicted when he read this. And he started smuggling Bibles and resources, financial, and encouragement to the church in East Europe and the Soviet Union. And that ministry continues to this day. It's called Open Doors with Brother Andrew. And it was Brother Andrew, this young Dutch pastor, who read this verse and was convicted that God said, the church in the, behind the Iron Curtain is about to die, and I want you to invest in it, to strengthen what remains. They're still doing that today. Church all over the world in oppressed portions are served by open doors with Brother Andrew. It's still going on today. This verse has convicted me repeatedly for the same reasons. You know, typically we have the, we set a bar for what we consider when our work's done, when we can take a break. You, you know, like studying for school or whatever. It's like, okay, I'm going to do so much and that's enough and then, then I'll take a break then I'll go to sleep or whatever. Uh, But when Jesus told them he's the one with authority, he's the one with the seven stars, that's to tell them he's the one who tells them when their work's over. They don't determine that for themselves. They don't determine that it's siesta time. He'll tell them when it's time for a break. They don't determine that for themselves. Part of our problem is that we are all too ready to determine when we're ready for a break. Let me read you a very brief excerpt from a story. This is the horse and his boy, C.S. Lewis. And the part I'm reading to you in this story, this young guy and his friend on their two horses, they've just, they finished a marathon race. They have crossed a desert. They forded a river. And it was all to both escape themselves, but also to warn a king of a neighboring country that he was going to be attacked. His kingdom was about to die. And so they had raced with all their might to get ahead of this invading army to warn this kingdom about what was to come, their impending doom or death. And after this marathon desert crossing, fording the river, and then escaping a lion, they're worn out, they're tired, and they're ready for a rest. And that's where we pick up here. And the old man is a monk, sort of guy, a hermit. The old man shook his head, uh, let's see, I'm sorry, Shasta is the kid's name, says, are you, panted Shasta, are you King Loon of Arkenland? Are you the one we're looking for to warn? The old man shook his head, no, he replied in a quiet voice. I am the hermit of the southern march, and now my son wastes no time on questions, but obey. This damsel is wounded, your horses are spent. Rabidash is at this moment finding a ford over the winding arrow. If you run now without a moment's rest, you will still be in time to warn King Loon. Shasta's heart fainted at these words, for he felt he had no strength left. And he writhed inside at what seemed the cruelty and unfairness of the demand. He had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another, and harder, and better one. 
But all he said out loud was, where's the king? And off he goes. See, because the job wasn't done. The, the mission wasn't just to escape. The mission was to warn the kingdom that's going to be invaded and killed. It's to warn them. So he'd come through a lot, and he's tired, and he's worn out. But the guy tells him, sorry, you know, your job's not over yet. You've got to keep going. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church. Guys, you're not done. It is not time to take your rest. The work is not over. You must keep going. Verse 3, he says, Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard, and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you won't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I will come upon you. When he calls them to wake up, to become watchful again, that's the call. But the first thing he tells them to do related to that is to remember. It's to think back. And think about this for just a minute. Uh, if you celebrate a wedding anniversary, you're celebrating the years, but then you remember the vows you took, right, to each other. Or Veterans Day, my wife's birthday, Veterans Day. All those, all those parades are really for Kathy's birthday. But Veterans Day, we remember what others did for our sake, and that is supposed to stir us not just to be grateful, but to be watchful. If you read the story of Israel walking through the desert and then crossing the Jordan River, do you remember what they did along the way? They set up stones of remembrance, memorial stones, and they were going to look at those stones and they were going to remember what God had done for them and also what he expected of them. It worked both ways. The call to remember was a call to remember what I'm commissioned with, what I'm commissioned for. The greatest call to remembrance is the Lord's Supper, where we remember what Jesus did on our behalf. And then, you remember in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, until he comes. And we remind ourselves, he's redeemed us, we've got a commission on the earth, and we're responsible to carry that out until he comes. Until he comes. So the first thing he tells them is, remember. And then he says, remember what you've received and heard. If you say, what did uh, the church at Sardis receive? What had they heard? I don't think this is complex or rocket science. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.1, I make known to you, not for the first time, but I am reminding you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which also you stand. Uh, It's easy to pick on the church of the Reformation period, so let me do that again for just a minute. That, That time period... Instead of evangelism, instead of telling people about Christ and salvation, they were selling indulgences. They were building cathedrals, these monuments, instead of giving people the water of life. The the whole thing was, was backwards. They'd lost their way. And you see, the thing that they'd been commissioned with, what they had been given, what they received, what they were supposed to pass on to others was the gospel. It wasn't a building. It wasn't wealth. It wasn't worldly success or power or prestige. It was a message about a person, the person of Jesus Christ. That's what they'd received. That's what they'd heard. But the Church of the Reformation, that had been lost. And in fact, I dare say, you can go all over this world and you can go into church buildings that are absolutely spiritually dead. 
they're religious and they're active and they might be wealthy and from the outside it might look like a lot's going on and they've forgotten who they were supposed to belong to and they forgot their commission. And with Sardis, they're laying down in the dirt on the side of the road asleep for all practical purposes, dead. Dead to the world. They forgot their commission. When Jesus, in Matthew 28, you remember this is a gospel which Matthew is showing that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Messianic King. That gospel closes with Jesus telling his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. I'm the top of the heap. I speak with the absolute authority of heaven and earth, and this is what I'm telling you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. That commission to the eleven wasn't just for 2,000 years ago. That is for their, those 11 and those who believed from them and on and on down to our day. The church's commission is to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, and teach them to follow Christ. That's the commission. And this church had forgotten it. And I'm telling you, you can go all over this city, you can go all over this state, all over this country, and all over the world, and you can go into churches in which you will not hear the name Jesus. They will not pray in his name and they won't tell you how to be saved. They're just like Sardis. They're spiritually dead. They're asleep. If it doesn't get back to who Jesus is and what he's done for you and I, if you're not hearing the gospel, if the person of Jesus isn't being held up, you're missing it. We we can do without all kinds of things. We don't need buildings. We don't need money. If we died today... The bottom line is, who do you know and where are you going? And if a church isn't telling people how to get saved, how to come into a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ, sins forgiven, eternity with God to come, if you're not hearing that, it's dead. The commission is thrown on the ground and they're asleep. They're worthless as far as the cause of Christ goes. And that's where Sardis was at. He tells them, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief and you won't know when I'm coming. Uh, Just trade on a theme here for a second. Uh, Matthew 25, you remember Jesus said, uh, tells a story about the bridegroom and the bride. Right? The bridegroom's gone off. And if you remember this period in history, the, the norm was a couple gets engaged. The bridegroom goes home to dad's house, and he builds the new portion. He makes the addition to the house for his new family to live at dad's house in their area, a mansion, in dad's mansion. And so the bridegroom goes home to do that, and the bride's just waiting. See, that the covenant's made. The wine has been drunk. The marriage just hasn't been consummated. She's just waiting for the day. He can come, take her, and they're going to go home. She doesn't know how long it's going to take, though. So she knows... Her intended is at home working and she knows one of these days she's going to hear somebody call the bridegroom has come. So you can imagine every day she lives with the thought it might be today. Today might be the day. I might hear that call today. And so she's aware and she's alert because she wants to be ready. 
So her hair's clean and brushed every day. The house is picked up. You know. But imagine the bride, you know, a few days go by, a few weeks, a few months. The house is a big one. It's taking a little longer than she thought. And what does she do? Well, she kind of lets things go. Puts on a few pounds. (laughs) Let's her hair go. Whatever. You know, the house is a mess. What does she think when she hears that call, the bridegroom, does she say, oh boy, great, I'm ready? It's like the thief in the night, you see. It's unwelcome. This isn't what she wants. This is a disturbing call now because she's not ready. And the point of all those, and you know, I take it, if Jesus repeats things over and over again, you know, there must be a point, don't you think? About finishing, about not stopping, about going through the race until he says it's over. We must need to hear this. And that's the thought here. It's be ready. Every day live ready. Ready to hear the bridegroom come. Uh, Let me close by telling you another story about another city. Not too long removed from the first one we started at. Uh, There was another king from Persia. Not long after the first one. This was Darius I. This was 490 B.C. And there was this pesky little city on the border of his empire in the west that he was determined to get rid of. Because they had helped a group, he had fought, his armies had fought earlier, and they'd beat his army. And for two years, he'd had a servant tell him at every meal, Lord, don't forget Athens. We're going to get him. So he prepares for two years this great armada to come over the sea. He's got his marines marching on land. They're going to go and they're going to crush that stupid little city of Athens. And Athens knows what's coming. So... They ask Sparta for help. Sparta says, eh, no thanks. We'll come later. So Athens musters all the people they can. They leave their city. They're going to meet the armies out at a place called Marathon. You've probably heard of that. They take all the army they can get, all the men they can muster. They go out to this one place. It's do or die. It's the roll of one dice. I mean, this is it. Their future. One battle. It's going to determine it. They're outnumbered at least three to one. And their city is undefended, by the way. So, they're shrewd in their battle plan, and they're aggressive. They're fighting for their life, and they understand that. And they stomp the Persians. They kick them big time. They chase them back to their boats. There's still a problem, though. Because, you see, they're separated from their city. Their city can still be taken by the Persian fleet. And the Athenians knew this. And so this is what they did. When their army left, they told the old men, the old women, the kids, and the infirm, they said, listen, you must man the walls of the city. You've got to keep watch over the city because there will be no defenders left here. And if the Persian fleet comes, you must be on the walls to give the appearance of a city defended. There's nobody left inside, but they won't know that if you're watching on the walls. If they sail up and they see the walls manned as if we're ready to defend the city too, they, it may save the day. So they win the battle. And when the battle is won, they send Phoedipus, I suppose their best runner. And Phoedipus runs from the battlefield all the way back to Athens. He runs, he finishes the course. 
He's run so long and so hard from Marathon, where we get the name of the race that's run today in his honor, 26 miles. He finishes the course with his dying breath. He tells them, we won. But they know we won is good. But it also means the Persian fleet is probably coming to sack the city. See, he finished the course, and he told them, guys, be ready, be watchful, because it's coming. And sure enough, the Persian fleet comes around. But see, the Athenians, they're watchful. They didn't have the gold or the wealth, and they didn't have the protection of Sardis. But what they did have is they were watchful. They were aware, and they were alert. They didn't go to sleep on the job. And when the Persian fleet sailed up, guess what? The walls were manned. They didn't attack. That battle is considered probably preeminently the battle that decided the future of the Western world Uh, because it was the Greek and then the Romans with Greek culture that have shaped all of Western civilization. It would have been the Persian Empire if they had lost that battle. World history would have been entirely different, entirely rewritten. They were on the wall and they had to stay aware and alert. They had to finish their job. Uh, I ask myself and I ask you, with all these calls to watchfulness and to keeping the commission, uh, are you and I, in the lives we live, in the realms we live in, are we asleep at the wheel? Or are we fulfilling the commission Christ has given us? You can think of this in any realm you like. Think of it as a student at school. Think of it as a parent. Think of it as a child in a family. Think of it as a neighbor to someone around you. Think of it as someone in this church. Just the deal is, the bottom line is, are you asleep related to the responsibilities God Almighty, Jesus, God the Son has given you and I? Or are you still working? Are you aware and alert and alive? Most importantly, are we as Christians and are we as a church, are we characterized by simply activity and an appearance? Or are people hearing from your lips and mine the commission Jesus gave us, the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do your neighbors know? Do your classmates know? Do the people you work with know? Have they ever heard the gospel from you or from me? Or if they come on Sunday morning, are they going to hear it? That's the commission. It's proclaim the gospel, make disciples until I come. I'm with you. That's your commission. That's what we're about. We don't want to quit the race early. We don't want to fall asleep on the wall. We want to wake up. We want to be a part of strengthening what remains, those areas of life that God's given us responsibility over. Let's pray. Lord, the fact that you repeat this message over and over and over again makes me know that we need to hear it over and over and over again. And Lord, the truth is that many times we feel like we've done enough and that it's time for a rest or a break. And Lord, while I know, because it was your example to take pauses from the work that you and the disciples would get apart and you would have a period of quiet or recreation, They were brief, brief pauses. They were not leaving the field of battle. They were not falling asleep 
on the job. And Lord, each one of us is commissioned by you as representatives of Jesus Christ to be sharing the message that Jesus saves, that he is Lord of life, Lord of heaven and earth, that in him is life itself, that to know him is to know life, to be forgiven, to be reunited with God the Father. Lord, I pray if we are asleep in some area of our life, for Lord, if we are asleep related to this great commission you've given us as members of your church, help us to wake up and remember as well. Lord, help us to be about your business, investing in the things you're working at. Lord, if you came today, help us be ready. Help us be like the bride who's ready. That your coming for us wouldn't be like the thief in the night, Lord, but that our lives would be characterized by the daylight hours, by work and activity on your behalf, in your name. Lord, we need your help. The truth is we're made of dust, as you well know. Strengthen us by your spirit, Lord. Help us keep our eyes on you and help us be those folks on the wall who are watchful, Lord, watchful about the things that matter to you, fulfilling the commission you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.